Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll read verses 12 through 17. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the word of the Lord, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Paul has made his greetings to the uh, apostle, not the apostle, the pastor, Timothy. And he has told Timothy that the first thing he must do is to warn certain men that they are not to teach. What were those men teaching? They were teaching myths and genealogies and a misunderstanding of the law. Um, They were teaching that the law was meant to establish our righteousness established the righteousness of the doer apart from faith. And all of it, he summarizes in that one word, speculation. All they were doing was speculating. Now we arrive at a personal testimony of the Apostle Paul. And this is, this is a frequent element. In Paul's letters, he often talks about himself. He often talks about the circumstances that the Lord put him in. But ultimately, it is talking about the work of the Lord, right? What God has done uh, for him. It really begins in verse 11, where Paul explains that God entrusted him with something. The glorious gospel of the blessed God. God has entrusted him with that. Uh, He's been entrusted with a message And then what is that message? Well, it says in our passage that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Verse 16. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, must be faithful to the the point of great suffering, right? To dispense that which has been entrusted to him. And of this entrustment, Calvin writes, This honor is, in a way, too great to belong to mortal men. 
This is why Paul, in the second letter to the Corinthians, cries out and says, who can be found fit for this? You know, it, it's, it's an incredible message that God has entrusted to men to propagate through the ages. The Apostle Paul um, elaborates. Notice what Paul says first in verse 12. He does not say, I am thankful for Christ Jesus our Lord, but rather, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. And this should instruct us very simply. So often we only express to other people our thankfulness for this or that. We, we express to other people that we, we are thankful for salvation, for God's provision, for providence, but we don't thank him directly. And I'm so thankful that, that this and that, we express it that way. But we haven't done the work of just simply thanking God, which is more important than telling other people our thanks. Um, we say we, um, we're so thankful, which is a, sort of focused on our feelings of thanks, thankfulness, but never get around to addressing our thanks to the one who has made everything possible. Um, Paul was in the habit of expressing his thanks to God. Are you in the habit of expressing your thanks to God? Or is it just a vibe you feel every once in a while? Um, express those thanksgivings to God. In this instance, what, what work of God is leading the Apostle Paul to thank Jesus? He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me. Given the task God called the Apostle to, God had to supply strength for him to do it. Uh, the enormity of what Paul was called to had to have a supply of divine strength uh, for it to simply be, for it to be possible, for it to be effective. And the apostle Paul was not strong enough on his own to do what God called him to do. He was not. And so God graciously provided him not merely with the calling, but with the strength to fulfill that calling. Um, do not forget what the Apostle Paul endured to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Right? In far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, you know what he says next. There's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? And so, I mean, you read that and you, you think it had to be divine strength that was, was fueling the Apostle Paul. No man can endure that sort of suffering. And, and do not be so foolish as to think that these were simply physical trials for Paul, although that's what he focuses on on the list. 
How many, how much physical pain causes you a crisis of your faith? Might the Apostle Paul have wondered in the midst of that day and night that he spent in the deep about God's goodness? Might he have wondered, is God really good? Might he have prayed like the psalmist, turn your gaze away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more? I mean, but clearly the strength he received from Jesus is on display when Paul speaks to the church in Ephesus, Acts chapter 20. He said, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. So that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. A man who can be persecuted to that extent in his faith must account of his life as nothing. And that is the strength of God. That is the strength of God to see your life as of no account, and then to continue to suffer. And Paul gives Jesus all the credit. Jesus strengthened him. Now you're dependent on God's strengthening too, aren't you? Has he called you to difficult tasks? To testify to his goodness to your homosexual uncle. Right, to discipline and love six, seven, or, or one child. Right? Who's up to that task? To stand up under the constant pressure of our wicked and vain generation, the, the pressure that it, it puts upon us to deny Jesus Christ. To endure temptations and trials. I mean, the difficulty of simply paying all the bills, to faithfully, uh, to faithfully steward all the employees of your business, to love your wife, to respect your husband, to fulfill those marriage vows, to fulfill your membership vows, to, to, to faithfully steward the absurd riches that he's given us without becoming idolaters. To obey your parents, children. To put to death the deeds of the body. To walk through another day with, with that unrelenting pain. To, to not make shipwreck of your faith. You've been called to hard tasks. You can't do it without the strength that Jesus must supply you. Who can do any of these things halfway decently without strength from God? The answer is nobody, not you, not me. God must supply the strength to you so that you may fulfill your calling, whatever that may be, so that you may remain faithful to that calling, just as it was for Paul. Elsewhere, Paul testifies to the gracious um, supply that God had given to him. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things because God is at work supplying the strength. 
Perhaps you don't believe this. You're doubting the goodness of God. Repent. Begin by thanking Jesus, as Paul did, and acknowledging where any strength that you do have has come from, as Paul did. Uh, Paul has known the power of God. He's known the strength of God in his own life, and he is using his example to encourage Timothy in his task And God is using his example to encourage all sinners down through the ages of the church who have read these inspired words. Now Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. And it sounds to us as if Paul is saying that there was something there before his conversion that required God to judge Paul faithful. Uh, This is how some heretics explain salvation. They do not believe God sovereignly by his will elected some to salvation before the foundation of the world, but that he looked forward into the future and saw who would freely choose him. In other words, such people proved their faithfulness and thereby obligated Jesus to save them. Paul cannot mean that. He was not worthy to preach the gospel. He was not worthy to be put into the service. And he goes on to say just that. It was only by the strength that God supplied to him that God was able to consider him faithful. It was only by his calling and strengthening that Paul would be considered faithful and put into service. Otherwise, all he had proven was that he was by nature a child of wrath. Verse 13, he was formerly a blasphemer and a prosecutor and a violent aggressor. In the book of Acts, we read this report of Paul before his conversion. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest And asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Breathing threats and murder. I'm going to kill you. Calvin says, by these sins, and this is a good reminder of what all sins deserve, Calvin says, by these sins, he deserved to be plunged into and swallowed up by the most bottomless pit of hell as a punishment. Paul had the depravity of his former manner of life in his mind throughout his ministry. He wrote this to the Corinthian church, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, Because I persecuted the church of God. Nonetheless, he goes on to report to them just what he said to Timothy about God's strengthening. This is in 1 Corinthians. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul's former manner of life was spent in persecuting not simply the church, but, as Jesus would put it to him during his radical conversion, he was persecuting Jesus Christ himself. 
As Saul was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? It's as if he's already converted. And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Imagine that. Imagine that. In that moment, Saul went from viewing his most zealous acts as being for God to being against God. All that he had given himself to, all that he had been receiving the praise of the leaders of Israel for, all that he had rejoiced in doing was revealed to him to be blasphemous hatred of the one true living God. And persecution again, and violent hatred toward God's household, the church. Did the knowledge of this sin ever leave Paul? Do the sins of your previous manner of life ever leave you? Oh, of course, there's a sense in which we're called to forget and press on, as Paul himself did and wrote in, in his letter to the Philippian church. But in another sense, we must not ever forget the wretchedness and hell earning rebellion of our former manner of life before our life in Christ Jesus. Paul would forget it from a guilt standpoint and be thankful for the grace of God, but he would not ever erase it from his memory because it fueled his humility, it fueled his thankfulness, it fueled his dependence, his ongoing dependence upon God. This is why later in our passage, Paul says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. Paul still recognizes the wretched, wretchedness of that particular sin of persecuting Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords. And the King of Kings. And he ought. He ought never forget that. But notice that he doesn't then conclude that God would never save a sinner like himself. Right? That's just stupid. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He claims the grace of God. He believes that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Perhaps Paul like Moses, like King David before him, was a murderer. But a murderer of Christians. It is possible that his zeal reached such a low. Is the grace of God available for murderers? Is the grace of God available for fornicators? Is the grace of God available for homosexuals and effeminate? Is the grace of God available for idolaters, all of which we were. Yes, of course. That's the grace of God. And here's, here I go again quoting this verse, or these verses. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor swindlers, nor revilers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. The Apostle Paul knew that washing and sanctifying and justifying grace of Jesus Christ, especially as he remembered his blasphemy and his murder and his persecution. Perhaps he knew it better than anyone else has, given the nature of his sin and then the extraordinary manner of his conversion. In fact, in verse 16, after stating that he was the foremost sinner of all, he explains that God's mercy specifically toward him was necessary so that Christ would be able to demonstrate his perfect patience. As if God had to exercise the most patience with Paul. And the whole thing would become an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Calvin says this, It is true that all of us have not been cruel to persecute the gospel. But what prevented us? Had we not this evil in us? If it were not, yet were we as wild beasts to thrust away the grace of God and tread his holy truth under our feet, whereby we deserve justly for God to completely cast us off. And let us consider, moreover, how many diverse and sundry kinds of faults we have committed. To be short... We must conclude that if St. Paul did not, upon good cause, magnify the mercy of God, experience teaches us that we must do likewise at the very least. Now let me backtrack a bit. We need to think about what Paul says in verse 13. It appears he's trying to lessen his sin, but later is trying to maximize his sin. He says, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. What is his meaning? Um, is he saying that his sin was not so sinful because it was done in ignorance? Now, the meaning I take from it is, is this, that there is a difference between a man not knowing the truth and therefore working against it, and a man knowing the truth and then working against it. Now remember that Paul, Paul was trained as a Pharisee. Okay? And Jesus called them what? He called them blind. Blind guides. Um, these men, though teachers of the law, did not understand the law. Paul was ignorant of the Messiah, ignorant of the proper understanding of God's word, and so his actions arose from unbelief. Um, it would be a different thing altogether if he had known the gospel and rejected it. That would not have been a rejection that arose from ignorance, but it would have been a rejection that arose from knowledge. Now, is there a rejection of God that arises from knowledge? Well, yes. Hebrews 6 describes it. It says this, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, 
and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified in themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now remember, I applied that, that passage to King Saul. Right? He had the Spirit on him. He heard the Word of God. He prophesied. He seemed to bear some little fruit, but in the end, he rejected the prophet, he objected to the Word of God, and ultimately shunned God himself. He was willfully rebellious, though given much by the ministry of Samuel and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he knew the command of God and would not do it. Paul, it appears, speaks of his rebellion not in that manner, but that he did not know Jesus as Messiah, and he really thought he was serving God in trying to bring an end to these Christians who followed the way. He really did think he was following God. Paul had been misguided by blind guides. Not Judas, who had received teaching from the Son of God himself. Paul acted ignorantly in unbelief. Judas acted willfully in rebellion. Which is not at all to say that Paul did not sin. Acting ignorantly in unbelief is sin. He did sin even while acting ignorantly, but the sin that that Saul committed, the sin that Judas committed was defiant. The sin of Paul was not of that ilk. It was born of ignorance. A, a difference in degree, can we say that? Well, here's, here's how, again, I'm helped by John Calvin in his preaching. And here's how he takes this. Calvin soberly ends his sermon on this passage this way, and I'll have a few remarks after it. He says, Let us mark well that when we are utterly blind and ignorant, we shall not therefore be without fault, neither can it serve as a cloak to absolve us before God. It will serve us to great purpose to say, I thought not of it, I thought otherwise, I knew it not. Nevertheless, we are to be condemned for our ignorance, and we must pass condemnation, for it will not avail us one bit to go about to justify ourselves. Let this be one rule. So he's like, let this be clear. It was still sent. Moreover, if they will fail out of ignorance... And are justly condemned by God, what shall we think when God has enlightened the rest and has shown us the way of salvation, and then we shut our eyes? Yea, and be so mischievous when we have received such a grace that when God calls us to the one side, we go clean contrary. What horrible condemnation may we look for? And thus, let us beware, because God has plucked us out of that unbelief wherein we were, and has enlightened us in the faith of the gospel. Let us think, I say, to walk in fear, 
and go forward in it every day until we come to that everlasting salvation which is prepared for us in heaven. And above all things, let us stand in fear of being cast away by God. And that he give us up, give us not up into Satan's hand, and that we fall not into this horrible bottomless pit to blaspheme against him, as we see some that have had some feelings of the gospel. Yea, and have been sufficiently persuaded in it, and now we see them as horn would be spewing out their blasphemies against God. And where does this come from? It is a horrible vengeance. As much will befall us if we do not learn to walk carefully. As I have said, that every man ought to take heed to himself. In other words, Calvin is saying just what Peter said in Scripture. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy command handed on to them. I mean, are there any more sobering words in Scripture? How would it have been better for them not to know in the way it was for Paul? In the way that rejecting God's truth is different than not knowing God's truth. In the way that ignorance is different than apostasy. Uh, In fact, look at the next section in Timothy's letter. There are a few more blasphemers mentioned. And, And their rejection is the kind of apostasy that differs from Paul's. Paul writes, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. There's Hymenaeus and Alexander who had some knowledge, who had some faith, who had some conscience before the Lord and then rejected it and have been handed over to Satan. That's different than the apostle Paul. Paul did not know Jesus. He blasphemed in ignorance and then was shown mercy. Hymenaeus and Alexander rejected the faith, blasphemed in knowledge, and then were handed over to Satan. And now, at this point in the sermon, and these are my last few sentences, you want me to take away the warning by speaking of election. You want me to take away the warning that the Apostle Paul gives to us, even in describing himself. But I won't. Covenant breakers are in a worse position than ignorant unbelievers. Covenant breakers are in a worse position 
than ignorant unbelievers. That is the teaching of Scripture. And it is meant to to cause us to walk in the fear of God. It's meant to cause us to be circumspect and sober. It's meant for us to be very concerned about the sins that we give ourselves over to. Right? It's caused us to be very, very fearful. God is no man's debtor. God will not be mocked. Let's pray. Our Father, we... We ask you to grant to us a sobriety in our faith. We ask you to cause us to have a deep fear, a deep hatred of of our sin, especially that ultimate sin to, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit to reject the faith. Oh God, I pray that we would be, we would be sober, that we would be uh, fearful, that we would remember that it was Jesus who taught his apostles, those men closest to him, that they were to not fear man that could kill the body, but fear God who could cast both body and soul into hell. Father, I pray that we would not that we would not believe in the caricature of you that plays in the churches today, that you are not to be feared, that you can be you can be that you you know that you have a sense of humor and that you can be trifled with. Father, guard us from such blasphemy. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.